You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 174. A few announcements today before we start. Uh, remember to send in your questions for future Q&A episodes. There is already a great list, but your question can make it better. History of the Great War at Outlook.com is my email. Send them over. And thank you to Julian for the question that came in about five minutes before I started writing this episode. Also, as usual, this podcast is brought to you by the excellent people who support the show over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. They get access to ad-free versions of these episodes for just $1 a month, and special episodes on topics like the cavalry, the evolution of military doctrine, and medical care during the war for just $5 a month. So if that sounds interesting, head over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. We now enter the last two episodes of our series on the 100 Days, the final Allied offensives of the war. Today we will be looking at the Allied offensive effort which began in late September and which would run with a few breaks until November 11th. During this time, the British, French, and Americans would be attacking directly into the much-hyped Hindenburg Line. The sheer scale of this fighting, with the entire front from Flanders down to the Argonne seeing attacks, would result in casualty figures that were higher than the massive positional battles of 1916 and 1917, and these would actually see territory changing hands, instead of just one army throwing themselves against the other with no real gains. These attacks would also see a different kind of warfare, a warfare not seen since the early days of 1914, with the battlefield becoming far more open and fluid, forcing the participants to adapt to the new conditions. In these new conditions, the material superiority of the Allied armies would really begin to alter the balance of the fighting, and the German army would continue its downward trend. I think it is appropriate to begin these episodes with a quote from a British sergeant who would take part in the British actions in Flanders during these months, 
He was an old hand with a lot of experience, and he compared the German troops of 1918 with those of earlier battles. He would say, quote, I have seen prisoners coming from the Battle of the Somme, from Mons and Messines, and along the road to Menin. Then they had an expression of hard defiance in their faces. Their eyes were saying, You've had the better of me, but there are many others like me still to carry on the fight, and in the end they will crush you. Now their soldiers are no more than a pitiful crowd, exhaustion of the spirit which always accompanies exhaustion of the body. They are marked with the sign of the defeated. End quote. October and November 1918 would be a very long six weeks for the German army, but at least the war would be over soon. The plans for the final offensives would begin in early September, when Foch laid out his plans to the army leaders. Foch had been pushing for an offensive along the entire Allied front since the, the Battle of the Marne, but now it would finally be possible. In the Meuse-Argonne sector, the Americans and French would attack on September 26th, an attack that we covered quite thoroughly in previous episodes. To their north and west, the French would continue their attacks towards Soissons and Rheims. To their left, the British would attack into the heart of the Hindenburg Line and try to push towards Dois and Cambrai on September 27th, with their first obstacle being the Canal du Nord. In Flanders, the British and French troops would attack on September 28th, and for the first time during the war they would be joined by the Belgian army in an offensive operation. The final offensive would be against the St. Quentin Canal, where the British and French would combine forces to push across one of the strongest pieces of the German defenses. It was hoped that these blows, following one after another after another, would cause the Germans to be simply overwhelmed. There were huge expectations for these efforts, but even with them, it was still expected that the war would go into 1919. Even in late September, the goal of these attacks was simply to get the Germans out of the Hindenburg Line and to gain some territory, with everyone expecting the Germans to make it to winter, at which point they would be able to hold out until spring. General Haig would be one of the leaders that had already shifted his thinking to a belief that they would end the war in 1918, but I'm not sure if he should be seen as some kind of luminary here, or if he just got lucky that in this case, his optimism would turn out to be correct. As we will discuss next episode, towards the end of the attack, the Allies were wearing themselves out, and they were going to enter into a period where they really could not continue the attack due to exhaustion. So it is understandable why many people did not think that they would be able to continue the attack far enough to end the war, or get into Germany. It would only be the complete collapse of the German army and society that would end hostilities so quickly. All of that's in the future, though, and for the moment in late September 1918, the Allies were about to launch their greatest offensive operation of the war. There would be 123 Allied divisions used in the attacks, with 57 more in reserve. On paper, they were facing a roughly equal number of German divisions, but many of these were mere skeletons of their former selves. I have organized this episode so that we will cover the events in chronological order based on when they started, but it's generally best to consider that all of these were sort of one big effort, since they happened so close together with only a day separating each one. For the Germans, it probably just felt like an avalanche of allied attacks. We have discussed the Meuse-Argonne operation in good detail in the last few episodes, but just a brief overview here is required just for completeness. 
When the attacks started on September 26, things went very poorly. There were few good advances, and many of the important parts of the attack were complete failures. Over the next several days, they would attack again and again, and slowly grind their way forward, but by the 29th, the Americans had to call it a halt. When they stopped, they had just reached the Kreimheld Stelhag, the primary set of German defenses in the area, and any resumption of the attack would mean that they would have to take those defenses. The entire situation greatly frustrated Foch and the French commanders in the area, who had by and large performed much better than the Americans. In their first major attack against German resistance, the Americans were not exactly showing themselves to be as good as they wanted others to believe that they were. In the north, the attacks against the Canal du Nord would be spearheaded by the Canadians, although there would also be two entire British armies, the first and the third involved as well. The canal itself was a tough nut to crack, with the west bank, where the Canadians would start, about 10 to 12 feet high, and then the canal was 100 feet wide, and then on the other side, they would be faced by a bank that was about 5 feet high. Trying to attack across such an obstacle with the number of troops required would be almost impossible. There was one other option, though, a small piece of the canal that was dry due to construction which had not yet been finished. It was only 2,600 yards wide, which did not give a lot of room to maneuver, but it seemed like the best option. Just to give an idea of how narrow this was, the Canadian Corps would normally occupy about 10 times this area of front, about 30,000 yards. If the front of these units got stuck or bogged down, it would be disastrous. General Curie, the commander of the Canadians, believed that it was worth the risk, and when the attack began at 5.20am on the 27th, the artillery appeared to be up to the task. Canadian Private Guy Mills would say, quote, It was like a furnace door opening. There was nothing but guns. You couldn't hear anything else but guns. You couldn't hear yourself shout. There was little that the German defenders could do when faced with such fire, and then the extreme numerical superiority of the Canadians. Within 12 hours, they had advanced 5 miles, and by the end of the first day, they had advanced a total of 6 miles on a front that was 12 miles wide, all while taking 1,600, or 16,000, sorry, German prisoners. On the right, the British Third Army had attacked directly into the German Hindenburg Line positions, and they would not make it all the way through but they did push into the defenses and cause serious German casualties. This does not seem like a great success, but it was also exactly what the British expected here. This alignment of expectations and reality was critical because it allowed the British to be completely prepared to continue the attacks the next day. Instead of scrambling to meet over-optimistic objectives from the first day on the second day, trying to arrange artillery, just the general craziness that had accompanied so many other British offensive efforts. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. 
Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The next blow would come in Flanders. Here, the British and French had gained the support of the Belgians, who for the entire war had stood on the defensive. They gained this support by naming the Belgian king, Albert, as the leader of the Northern Army Group. He would have a French chief of staff, General Dugo, but the king would technically be in command. He would be leading French, Belgian, and British divisions in the attack, and their goal was to drive east of Ypres and into the areas surrounding Passchendaele. Good old Passchendaele. The situation in 1918 was very different than it had been in 1917, and the German defenders would be heavily outnumbered, and most important, most of their reserves had been sent south during the previous months. This prevented the rush of reserves to the area that had stabilized the front in 1917. When the attacks began on the 28th, they started with success. Even though there was once again rain, and even though they were attacking over the same churned-up ground that had been the site of the 1917 battles, and even though the Germans were completely aware that the attack would soon begin, the Allies were still successful. On the first day, they would advance up to eight miles, with the village of Passchendaele, or what was left of it, being captured by Belgian troops. The next day, the attacks would continue, along with the rain. This reduced the speed of the advances due to the problems of moving men, supplies, and artillery forward, which we've discussed at length. Instead of continuing the struggle forward in these conditions, the attacks would instead be halted just a few days later on October the 2nd. It would be two weeks before they would begin again, after the ground had dried and the situation on the rest of the front had continued to develop. While we spent so much time discussing the Western Front, and it was the primary point of focus in 1918, there were events elsewhere in Europe that also had an effect on the situation in the West. In the middle of September, the Allied troops that had been stationed at Salonika since 1915 began an offensive, pushing north against the Bulgarians. For two weeks, the Allies advanced just about as fast as their feet could carry them, as the Bulgarian troops just sort of melted away in front of them. Whole units of the Bulgarian army mutinied and spontaneously moved towards rail lines that they hoped could take them home. Due to the complete collapse of the army, on September 26th, a Bulgarian delegation crossed over and requested a suspension of hostilities. This offer was rejected by General Franchette d'Espray, the commander of the Allied armies. On the 28th, he received another delegation, and this time they were simply seeking an armistice, and this he would negotiate with. On the 29th, the armistice would be signed, and on the 30th, it took effect. Bulgaria was out of the war. 
While losing an ally was bad enough, the removal of Bulgaria from the board also opened up some other problems for the Germans. It meant that they might lose touch with the Romanian oil fields, which they were relying on as their sole source of oil. It also opened up the possibility of an advance of Allied troops into Austro-Hungarian territory, which would then force the Austrians to abandon the Italian front, which would then lead to cascading problems that might push Austria-Hungary out of the war entirely. Things were starting to close in on the Germans. Back in the West, the German military leadership was on the brink of despair. There was news out of Austria-Hungary that the Hungarians were about to declare themselves an autonomous nation and completely remove themselves from both the war and the empire. Other groups within Austria-Hungary were considering similar moves. Ludendorff had to tell the commanders at the front that there would be no more reserves. They had all the men that they would get, and they would just have to make do. The Allied attacks in Flanders really threw the German command into something akin to chaos. After hearing of the attacks, Ludendorff would go into Hindenburg's office at 6pm and tell him that an armistice would have to be offered very soon. The German foreign minister, Hintz, made it clear to the military leadership that any offer of peace to the Allies would have to come with political reforms on the home front. He knew that the Allies would not accept the current German government, and so it was very important to start considering radical transformations at, back at home. This was probably already going to happen due to the relationship between the current German government and the socialists, who were already pushing for change due to the war, and the successes of the socialists in Russia. More importantly, out of all of these concerns, Hintz had serious doubts whether the monarchy, with the Kaiser at its head, could survive into the post-war period. This meant either abdication or forced removal, a nigh unthinkable thought. An attempt to reach out to the Allies did not happen at this point, but all these discussions, all of these thoughts, sort of laid the groundwork for what would happen later, after a few more Allied successes. On the same day that Hintz was at Spa discussing the situation with Ludendorff and Hindenburg, the Allies began their attack on the St. Quentin Canal. The canal had been incorporated into the German defenses, and it made a pretty imposing impression. It was 35 feet wide, with the Germans placing wire in the canal itself and on the banks coming out, and the banks were 10 feet high on both sides. The water was only about 8 feet deep, but under it was mud that would swallow anything that fell within. It was a daunting task to try and get across, and for the most part, the Allies would attempt to go around it. However, Rawlinson wanted to make an attempt to attack it directly across. Now, when General Monash, the leader of the Australian Corps, heard of these plans, he believed that they were madness, but Rawlinson insisted that the British troops give it a go. All along this part of the front, the troops would benefit from a huge artillery barrage that would last three days, which at this point in the war was far longer than normal. And during this time, the artillery would fire 750,000 artillery shells. More important than the number of shells was the effect that this bombardment had. Now, the British had complete and accurate plans for the German defenses on this sector of the front, because way back during the Amiens attack, a, a British tanker had captured a German Corps headquarters, where not all of the papers had been destroyed. One of those papers contained plans for the defenses in this area of the front, including every trench, dugout, and artillery position. It was a dream come true for the British planners, and especially for the artillery. The attack would begin at 5.50am on the 30th, and the British troops on the southern end of the attack would reach the canal in about two and a half hours. Some of them also captured an important bridge intact, with others, while others began to cross over the canal directly. To pretty much everyone's surprise, these efforts were successful. 
and things went very well for the British troops in this area. These attacks were mostly just supposed to tie down the German troops, with the real advances slated to be made by the combined Australian and American forces to the north. Instead, the British troops would make good time, and by the middle of the afternoon they would advance three miles, capturing the primary German defensive positions. Once again, the prisoner numbers were in the thousands, with the British troops taking 5,000 of them just by themselves. On October the 1st, the French attacks would take the city of St. Quentin, while at the same time, attacks continued all along the front. It would be hard fighting for the Allies, but they continued to grind their way forward. By October the 3rd, they had advanced all the way through to the final line of defenses of the Hindenburg Line, which was called the Beaurevoir Line. This was the weakest of the German defenses. It was all that stood between the attacking troops and the open country behind. It would be here that the attacks would begin to slow, due to the same logistical problems that have been, we've been talking about for 174 episodes now. Foch would be displeased by this development, and would write to Patan that, quote, Yesterday, October the 3rd, we witnessed a battle that was not commanded, a battle that was not pushed, and a battle that was not brought together, and in consequence, a battle in which there was no exploitation of the results obtained, end quote. While the situation seemed to be going fantastically for the Allies in the West, there were some cracks that were beginning to appear that would fully come to bear as October progressed. With the French having played such a large role in the fighting of the Germans for pretty much the entire war, and then being so heavily featured during the fighting in the summer of 1918, their army was on its last legs. Their troops were exhausted, they were out of men, and their equipment had been heavily taxed when trying to get the Americans ready to fight. By the end of September, they were teetering on the edge of exhaustion, and during October they would suffer a further 133,000 casualties. The British were having similar problems. Some of their best troops, especially the Canadians, the Anzacs, and the premier British divisions, had been in almost constant action for months. The Anzac Corps had to be pulled off the line to get some rest, but it would never be enough. The British and Canadians were also having serious manpower problems, and they were having to break up battalions to keep others up to strength. So, the Allies were winning on the battlefield, but they were also starting to run out of gas in early October. They needed a break. They were hurting and exhausted for sure, but on the German side, they were mortally wounded. Back on the home front, Prince Max of Baden was named the Chancellor after a near riot in the Reichstag. He was known for his liberal tendencies, and he fully believed that hostilities had to stop, and soon. Crown Prince Ruprecht would write to Max, completely bypassing Ludendorff, and say that an armistice had to be signed soon, or the army would not be able to prevent an invasion of Germany. Ludendorff was actually saying much the same thing, insisting that speed was critical, and that the army was falling apart. Prince Max, with a bit of foreshadowing of what would happen in the years to come, insisted that Hindenburg put down in writing that the army could not continue the fight. A note was started that would be sent not to the Allies, but directly to President Wilson. They pinned many of their hopes on Wilson's 14 points, discussing items like peace without victory and conceding to almost all of Wilson's demands. This was a Hail Mary, trying to get the best possible peace terms out of what was a very bad situation. They also requested an immediate armistice, but they would not receive a positive response. There was still more fighting to do, and a lot more dying, and all of that had to be done before the war could come to an end. <laughs> 